Uh, turn to Mark chapter 6, if you would. So give them, be praying for them and the process as they go through it. Mark chapter 6, uh, we're going to pick it up in uh, 6b. We're going to read this passage of scripture today. We're going to read about 23, script, three, uh, 23 verses. And scholars call this, we're going to look at what's called a Mark, Markin sandwich. And the idea is, is that Mark, he tells one story, cuts it in half, inserts another into it, and then comes back to it. So it's kind of like there's, there's two pieces of bread, you got an intro to it, and then all of a sudden he inserts this other major story, which is kind of part of the meat, and then he closes it off with another bun. And so you're going to kind of, if you'll follow with me today, we'll show you how he does it, because he does that throughout his Gospels. And, and one scholar said it's amazing that one of the reasons he believes that he does this is because it adds a lot of flavor to both stories and kind of accentuates it and, and helps you understand both of them more clearly. So we understand now Jesus is going from village to village. He's teaching. And today he comes to this place where he realizes, he's always known it, but this is really the launching point where he must multiply himself by multiplying himself and sending out other disciples. He does this because there's lots of villages. There's a whole region, but only one of him. So what we're going to begin to see today is how he sends them out on mission and how they're going to go out. They're going to start to practice this thing called ministry. So if you would, let's pick it up. Chapter 6 of Mark, verse 6b. Now he, was count, now he was going from the villages in a circuit teaching. So he summoned the 12 disciples to them. Remember he called them aside chapter 3. And now this is kind of the launching point where the reality of that first call comes into place. And it says, and he began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Why would he send them out in pairs? Have you ever noticed because you're more courageous when you're in with somebody else? It's one of the reasons why we talk about doing team ministry because a lot of churches, when people are their own by themselves doing the ministry all the time by themselves, it's really easy to get discouraged, to get defeated, to get depressed, to get downtrodden. And when you have somebody else there, when you're, it's kind of like marriage almost. When you're down, they can pick you up. Or when you're up, you can pick them up. And so Jesus sends them out in twos and at times in groups. And he, and he, and he says this, I'm instructing you to take nothing for the road except a walking stick. He says, I don't want you to take any bread, no traveling bag. Interesting about no traveling bag. <clears throat> Some of your translations calls that a scrip, which a scrip in that day was really a beggar's bag. So they'd go out and they'd, they'd gather stuff in it and they'd get help for their journey along the way. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be good if, if, if they scripted that thought into the televangelistic shows. No begging for money all the time. Okay, I'll move on. So he says, no, nothing but a walking shit, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. They were simply to wear the sandals. Not to put in even an extra shirt. And then he said to them, Wherever you, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. 
If any place does not welcome you and people refuse you, he's talking to you because he's sending them now to the Jewish people. It says, if they refuse to listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. Important phrase there, that people should repent. And they were driving out many demons and they were anointing many sick people with oil and healing. So, so Jesus sends them out. He says, take nothing but the essentials. I don't want you to take any food. I don't want you to take any money. I don't want you to take a backpack. I don't want you to carry extra supplies. I want you just to have the, the, the clothes on your back, sandals on your feet, a stick to walk with. In our vernacular, you know what he's really saying is he's saying, leave your credit cards at home. You're not going to need any money. I don't want you to have a per diem or any travel allowance. You are going to do this with me. So why does Jesus say it this way? Well, I think because Jesus wanted to really begin to build within them because he knew what was coming down the road, a real trust in their heavenly father, their father God. So imagine if you could, again, kind of get your, your thinking into the process of what's taking place here, that they're going to be going off on a, on a ministry trip for a couple of weeks. They're going to be journeying by food. They're going to be journeying by foot with nothing and no money and no food, nothing to take with them. And then he says, I want you to stay where you're first welcomed until you leave that town. See, he didn't want them to go, um, oh, I'd like to find a better accommodations here. Uh, this is too much like a Motel 6. I'd like to find somebody that's like a rich Carlton. And, and he really wanted them to develop relationships and to be satisfied. And then he says, if you're not received, he says, I want you to shake the dust off your feet. Now, this is something that whenever a Jew went into a Gentile territory, he always shook, uh, shook the dust off his sandals so that he wouldn't take the Jewish contamination back in to the Holy Land. So by telling his disciples this, Jesus is telling them that even with Jewish people, if you enter into a Jewish village and they reject your message, then you're really supposed to basically treat them almost like pagans and just shake the dust off and keep moving. It's not necessarily a mean thing, it's a cultural thing, but it's basically saying you have rejected the greatest hope of your life. And what does Jesus say their message is? This is the message of the kingdom. You can see it in Matthew chapter 3, 1 and 2. As John the Baptist comes, he ushers in this message of entrance into the kingdom is about, it says that he preached to the people that they would repent. And Jesus is relaying that same message. Wherever you go, tell people, preach to people, let them know they have to repent. What does repentance mean? Do you remember from a few months back? Repentance is matanao, which, which has to do with it all starts in your mind. It's, it's a change of mind that ultimately changes the course and the direction of your life. And so many of us in this room understand that because we were going one way. We were thinking wrongly. We were thinking uh, in, in a different way. And all of a sudden, we, we are confronted with the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for our lives through his life and death and his resurrection that he would come to forgive us of our sins, that he paid the penalty for our sins, and we quickly begin to understand, I, I'm thinking wrong, and i got to change the direction and the course of my life. And so a lot of us ended up doing like a 180. And that's literally what repentance means. 
is that you start thinking straight and, and you literally almost do a 180 in your life because you've encountered the living God through Christ Jesus. So he's saying, when you go through these villages, I want you to preach. I want you to preach repentance and I want you to tell people they're wrong. I want you to tell people that they're sinners. Now that's gonna be important because we're gonna see one where that happens in just a minute. Now can you imagine if Jesus sent you to work tomorrow and he said, Ed, any house you go by, I just want you, I just want you to tell them to repent. Tell them to get their head straight. You go to your cubicle tomorrow. Hey, I want you to start thinking straight, brother. Now, I, I would recommend you probably don't do it that way. We're in a different time. But let me ask you this. What does your life say? Is your life kind of a, 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 a getting a straighter life in a crooked world? Would people begin to see and, and kind of sense there's something different about you that maybe sometime at some place would cause them to consider the claims of Christ? because of what they see in you. Because see, loved ones, the message here is to kingdom dwellers, followers of Jesus. We are being sent today, every day that we leave this place. So I suppose, do you feel like you're ready to do whatever it is that, that Jesus wants you to do? I don't know about you, but I feel, I've always felt pretty inadequate about that. And you gotta figure, if you really even evaluate the disciples, you gotta go, are you kidding me, Jesus? Why are you sending those guys? Man, that's like sending Curly, Moe, and Larry. I mean, just based on the history that we've seen, they, they don't get a whole lot of things right. But Jesus goes, you know what? You're going. There's an old saying that says Jesus, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And, and I want to remind us loved ones the same thing. Because I think I see so many of us and, and, and I got so many inadequacies and insecurities that I got to deal with in this whole arena. But I see a lot of people, they just sit back and they kind of go stealth and they try and stay below the radar. And, and they never, we never challenge ourselves to say, well, God, what do you want me to do? Because I doubt those disciples felt ready. And I don't know that you'll ever feel really, really ready. Because if you feel really, really, really ready to do something for God, you, you might be in a dangerous place. Because then you'll probably be doing it in your own strength, your own power, your own way, your own mind. And, and I got to tell you, I've been doing this, I don't know, I've been doing this for a whole lot of years. And I'm as scared today getting up here as I am, as I was when I was probably... Uh, I think my first talk I gave was 23. I'm just a little more comfortable with the process, but I'm still, it, it, it's, I just, if I don't have Jesus, man, it ain't gonna happen. I remember when I finished up at the preacher factory and I look at, uh, you know, the guys and Cameron and Christopher and how they did and I don't know, I, can't, I don't know what their class was like, but I think I had 40 people graduate with me and, give or take a few. And um, we, we graduated, and there was only two of us that went into full-time pastoral ministry. A few of them said, I'm not ready. I'm going to go get more education. And so they got kind of educated out their ears and ended up never going into the ministry. And other people went into other vocations. And I was just really scared because I hadn't been a Christian for very long. And 
but I, I had just, I, I think I had just a, a, enough, a little more courage and probably a little more stupidity than probably all the other ones. And I said, man, I got to, you know, I just spent thousands of dollars on education. I got to get a job. And so I had a job and I just went for it. But it's amazing how many people just kind of never, never go for it. They're kind of afraid. And I want you to hear this morning from this passage, Jesus has called you, he sent you. This is what he says, he says, first thing he does is he calls the 12 to himself. That's the first thing he did with every one of us in this room. He calls us to himself, and then he says, I'm gonna send you out, and it's exactly what he does. He calls us to himself, and he changes us, and and he sends us out into this broken world as his agents. Every Christ follower, loved ones, is sent out by Jesus as a missionary. And the word missionary comes from the Latin term. It simply means to send. And sometimes the reason the church has lost its focus and its ability to begin to infiltrate and to begin to move missionally into a culture is because we forget we're sent ones, not gathering ones. That's why we make sure that our, our, our little tagline, gather, grow, go. See, most churches like to gather and grow. And I never want you to forget that those other two things mean very little if we're not going. Because see, Jesus, after he resurrected, remember he appears to the disciples and what does he say to them? These guys are scared spitless. And they're thinking they're going to die next. And all of a sudden, the resurrected Lord shows up. And he speaks these words to him in chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And, and, and those words really are meant to echo throughout the corridors of history from that time into our lives. You are sent by Jesus into a world right where you are, in your home, in your neighborhood, at your job, at your school, where you shop, where you play. Jesus sends you as his representatives. And I tell you this, and I, and I love it. Uh, uh, you know, really, it kind of... It, kind of takes the slack out of my sails a lot of times because everywhere I go, I got to remember driving around town, going to a grocery store or some store or stopping, whatever I do, you know what I got to realize? Most of the time, one of you is going to be around. <laughs> and and uh, I told you the story one time, this is a few years ago, somebody drove into the, the, the building here we had to get it fixed. And, and one day I was at the grocery store line with Trina up here at Lucky's. And, um, and I was, you know how you can talk real, you know, I, you can talk real quiet. And I was kind of just, I was just kind of whining about something at church. And I was complaining. And I was, and I was, but I was kind of bent over and, and, and I was kind of, you know, taking out some stuff and putting it on the thing and talking to her. And uh, I get back up. And about a minute later, one of the guys is behind me. He goes, hey, hey, aren't you the pastor at Creekside? Well, he ended up saying, you know, I heard about last Sunday about a person driving through the wall. I want to help you fix it. Well, it really kind of reminded me. Man, wherever we go, we are agents. We are ambassadors of the living God. Wherever you go, for our policemen, listen, God just gives you that uniform of a policeman so you can be a better secret agent Christian. So that when the opportunities come, you can use that uniform. If you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're an airline pilot, all of those uniforms are simply a camouflage to bring Jesus to that area. If you teach school, you step into that school and you are simply a representative, a missionary for Jesus to teach 
those young children to be his hands and his heart extended. And two things that we're really committed to here, loved ones, is ministry inside the church, but mission out there. It's not either or, it's, not, it's, it's both and. See, the reason we have to do ministry in here on this campus is because we want to be able to have the kind of place that when people are looking for Jesus and they say, oh, I'm gonna go try a church, they try here, they come here, they know they're welcome, they know they're gonna be taken care of, they know that we're gonna serve them in Jesus' name to the best of our ability, that they matter to us, that we will put them in a priority place and give them and take care of them and their kids. That's why we spend money in the ways that we do. And we can never forget about the ministry here. But hear me, loved ones, what Jesus is talking about, we can never forget about the mission out there. See, what happens is that in the church is that we get trained, we get equipped, we get inspired, and we get prepared for the week here, today, to now. And I love hearing stories of Creeksiders. They share with me, they email me, how God, they call me, they voicemail me, and what God's doing in their lives. I love hearing your stories. See, the church can be like a NASCAR pit stop. You ever watch NASCAR or, or the Indy 500? You get these cars just zooming around in this race. But they go to the pit not just to rev their engine, not to discuss the kind of fuel that's going to be put in. They don't go there to hang out with the pit crew and joke around and slap each other on the back while all the other cars are lapping them. They don't go there to just park and stop and enjoy life, they go there for a couple of things. Number one, they go to get refueled, to get renewed, to get their tires fixed, to get built up, to get the areas in their life where it's got chinks in them or their cars got chinks in them. They go there to get it taken care of. That's exactly what we do at church. We come today to get challenged, to get filled up, to get refreshed, to get renewed, to high five, to enjoy the people around us, and really to kind of get almost healed up from all the bruising that takes place out there. But the focus is not simply to stay here and just kind of take care of ourselves. And it's so easy, loved ones, to get this mixed up and to think that God's work happens primarily in this place. No, 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 no. The primary function of Creekside Church, which is you and me, is that the ministry, God's work, takes place out there. Our goal is not just to get everybody involved in a bunch of church programs. So by doing this, churches, you know, what churches do is they want to they prepare people to be good church people. We don't want to prepare people to be good church people. We want to prepare people to be good church people who go out and minister the life of Jesus while they're good church people here on Sunday. And I don't mean good, like do the right things, but I mean where you come here, not just to receive, that's a big part of it, but you also come here to serve. When you have opportunity at your table to share with somebody, maybe you hear that they're struggling, you can take a moment right there and begin to pray for them. You see somebody coming in, they're down, they're dauber, you can take a moment to begin to pray for them and reach out in the name and hands of Jesus. So, so even on Sunday, it isn't all about coming and simply receiving. Now hear me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't come to church, volunteer, help here, go to prayer meetings, be involved in a growth group. I believe all of those things are important. And what I just said a minute ago, there's, it's possible there's some clown here that says, oh good, there's my carte blanche to be able to not have to go to church because I can just be the church unto myself. And like I always say, any of those people at some point just kind of get just a little off kilter and they kind of become a theologian unto 
to themselves and they become just a little bit, well, different. So I'm not saying that. But I am saying we've all been called. And if you never go out into the world, then basically you just become part of the pit crew. I was walking home last uh, Sunday and uh, I got home and um, one of our neighbor, uh, our, our neighbor right next door had died, uh, the, the wife. And Trina says to me, she goes, our neighbor, come over to see you. And he'd never been to church here. And she goes, I just, I saw that he was distraught and so I just kind of asked and he said, yeah, my wife just died last night but I really wanted to see Terry. Seventy, I think he's seventy-eight. This is a guy that that I, I usually when I talk to him, we talk about golf. And probably about a couple months ago, he was telling me about his wife and that she was sick. Didn't say what. And I says, "Well, can I pray for you? Can I help you?" Well, no, no, she's real. Can I come see her? Can I talk? No, 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 she's real private. Doesn't want anybody to know. Didn't give me any details. I said, "Okay." He knows I pastor here. It's just about most of the people in our neighborhood do. What I find interesting, though, of us is one of the first places that he went was to my house. And I wouldn't even consider him a good friend. And I think that that's, you know, and that's, that's not any kind of thing on me other than I think that's what Jesus wants to make sure that wherever we are, we're that person that people go to. That people somehow know, somehow there's something that they can tap into at those really difficult times in their life. Um, right, right now I'm in a season where I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm a little bit frayed and fried around the edges. And so this morning, as is, is, is their custom, the council comes in and prays for me and I have to catch a plane right after second service to fly to Des Moines for our missions board meetings. And I found it interesting, kind of disconcerting, that they started praying, oh God, just bring somebody to sit next to Terry that he can share life with. And this is really one of those times where I really, my goal was to be the farthest away from the closest person <laughs> so I could just kind of just veg for about four and a half hours. But then I reminded, no, no, I'm a set one. And whether it's walking home and whether it's on the plane, I've got to be, we've got to be open for business because people need Jesus. We're a sent people. Jesus calls you to send you. You're his agent doing his work wherever you go, loved ones. And some of you say, but I, I don't feel ready. You'll never feel ready. Remember when you learned to swim? Did you read a manual for six weeks or six months or six years? Okay, I am going to do the stroke or the overhead stroke. Oh, I'm going to do the breast stroke. I mean, you didn't do that, did you? No, your parents probably said, I just paid 60 bucks. You're going to do these swimming lessons, so get in the pool. <laughs> That's how I learned. Or some of you are still tra traumatized because you had some crazy parent that just threw you in and said, hey, swim, make it to the side. Now, I don't think Jesus totally does that to us, but I think he does it a little bit more than we think. I think he's kind of waiting for us. When are you going to jump in? Jesus risks sending these guys, hear me, uh, but he takes the same risk with you and me. And hear this, you know what? We are plan A. 
And guess what? There is no plan B. It's you and me. I hope you live every day. I hope you begin to remember this week that because Jesus has called you to him, he is now sending you out from him to be his hands, his heart, his life extended. Look at this here in verse 14. Let's get to the meat. King Herod heard of this because Jesus' name had become well-known. He was becoming popular. He's becoming famous. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers at work at him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet. He's like one of the prophets. <coughs> when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias. Herodias is his wife which was also his brother Philip's wife, whom he ended up marrying. Now, John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. I'm going to talk next week out of uh, the first part of uh, Mark 6 again in this passage. We're going to talk about grudges. Wanted to kill him. Uh, But he could not. Get this, because Herod was in awe of John and he was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. See, people know. People pick up on it. Daniel 5 talks about Daniel, that he had a different spirit. He had an extraordinary spirit. And see, loved ones, we we, we gotta remember that when we carry the life of Jesus with us, man, there's a spirit about us. There should be. So when Herod heard him, he would, he would be very disturbed, yet he would hear him gladly. You've ever been in a, where you experienced that? Where, where you're hearing the word and it's like, oh man, it's killing me. Oh, but I can't turn away because it's, so, it's, it's, it's doing something in me. And, and, and can I just tell you, there's gonna be time when, when you lose that, when, when, when you don't feel that on, on a semi-regular basis, can I tell you what's going on? Your heart's getting hard. Go back to Mark 4. When there isn't the convicting work of the Spirit, when everything becomes ho-hum, it's an internal kind of dashboard that says, man, I'm becoming hardened to the things of Jesus. Because even this pagan, hardened, murderous man when he heard the word, it was, he was convicted. It didn't change him, but it was at work in him. Now, an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a big banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and she danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So he swore oaths to her. Whatever you ask me, I'll give it, up, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now that's a pretty, big, uh, a pretty big, I'll give you. Well, then she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And what did she say? Give me John the Baptist's head. Immediately she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter right now didn't want him to think about it. 
So the king was deeply disturbed and distressed because of it, but because of his oaths the, uh, before the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about it, they came and removed the corpse and they placed it in a tomb. So the story of Herodian, the Herodian dynasty is like a big soap opera, as you could have just picked up from little bits and pieces here. Uh, Herod Antipas is, is who he's talking about here. He was a son, one of the sons of Herod the Great, who was the Herod at the time of Jesus, you know, who, who called for the slaughter of the firstborn uh, boys. So he was in power when Jesus was born. One of his sons was Herod Antiochus. Now Herod the Great was, was just a debauched, awful man. He had some, because he didn't trust his sons and he was paranoid about them, maybe trying to usurp his throne, he actually had some of them killed. There was a saying in that day that said it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. So he was a bad, bad man. But when he died, he had, he had four major sons and he split his kingdom up between these four sons. And Herod Antiochus, who we read about here, he ruled Galilee and Perea. And as it said, he ends up divorcing his own wife and he seduces his brother's wife, Herodias, and he marries her. Now, now Herodias, uh, as a woman, had a lot of ambition and she lived with her first husband in Rome and they lived off his inheritance and she loved that. But he was attracted to Herod's power and position. So Herodias and her daughter end up leaving Rome and moving in with him and, and she marries him. So I enter into this stage, stage right, this bold prophet called John the Baptist. Herod's intrigued by him. He's heard about his message. He's wondered about his life. And, and, and as I said, there's a spiritual sensitivity that the spirit of God is tapping into that he could have responded to, but he doesn't. So he invites him to the palace for a private audience. And John has the audacity to tell Herod, Repent. And he said that you and Herodias are living in sin. Now, this irritated Herod, <laughs> but it infuriated Herodias. It infuriated to her to the point where it says that she held a grudge and literally wanted to kill him. So she's biding her time and she's waiting because she, she understands this. What happens if her husband Herod ends up responding to this message of repentance to John the Baptist and kicks her out of the house and tries to make everything right? She loses all of her ambitious plots and planning and scheming for her future. She understands that the stakes are getting high here with this lethal message. So she's going to take and make a lethal plan of her own. And so, we, she, so she seizes this opportunity at, Herod, at uh, Herod's birthday. Probably got a little too much to drink, a little sauce, a little too, you know, liquored up. And all of a sudden, you got this uh, beautiful young girl that's probably in, they believe, in her late, late teens, early 20s. She does this seductive dance, and everybody's woohooing, and, and he kind of gets tricked into making this uh, deal with her. And so what is... Uh, Herodias do, she, she grabs the opportunity with her daughter and says, tell him I want John the Baptist's head. 
he caves in, falls in, and has John killed immediately. Now, you, you got to admire John's courage, don't you think? I mean, imagine standing before the king who could literally just literally take your head off and telling them that he's living in sin and he has to repent. That takes guts. That takes faith. He says, I'm going to speak the truth and God's going to take care of it and I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. Can I just tell you something? That that takes courage and it's the stuff that spiritual champions are made of. Now hear me, hear me. This is really important. You're not John the Baptist, the prophet. Okay, so don't walk into the office tomorrow and, and, and try and pull this off. If God were to literally tell you to do it, it would probably work. I'm not saying that. But there are times when we have to speak into people's lives, this is sin and you need to repent if you want your life to move forward. And I can tell you, There is always a cost when you do it. I have lost a number of supposed friendships because I would sit at tables when I really totally believe God said, I want you to to speak to this brother and speak into his life that what he's doing is a road to hell and destruction. And nobody wants to hear that. What they want you to do is to coddle him and love him through it. And most Christ followers do not have a really strong ability to challenge and confront and love through it. Because we know that once we challenge, there's a really good possibility that person will run. And we forget that's not our fault. That's not our problem. If we do it in the grace and the truth that Jesus did it. Because when Jesus did it, when people were ready, they changed. And if they didn't change, they'd run. But that's, that's what happens. But so many of us are so afraid to speak the truth in a loving, God-honoring, people-building, life-saving way. Remember Daniel's three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, or some call them Meshach, Yorshach, and a bungalow. They, remember the King Nebuchadnezzar comes to them And he says he's got this 90-foot golden image of himself. And he says, you bow or you die. And and if you you don't bow, I'm going to throw you in this furnace. What do they do? We're not bowing, dude. Okay, I'm going to give you one last opportunity. No, we're not doing it. Okay, come on. Please, you don't just hear them. No, we're not doing it. Throws them in the furnace. And Jesus ends up saving them, walking through it. Remember the reformist Martin Luther in 1521? He's standing before the leaders of both the church and the state in Germany, and they said, we want you to recant your teaching. You know what his teaching was? It was uh, uh, salvation through faith, through the grace of Jesus, that everybody should have access to the Bible. And the Catholic Church says, no, no. With his life on the line, this is what he says, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. For me to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. And it's where we get this, 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 this uh, thing called sola scriptura. 
which means scripture alone will be my guide. That was Martin Luther. Remember Mother Teresa, one of my heroes? It was 1994. She was invited to speak to the Washington, D.C. prayer breakfast. You know, that's the big one with all the political people. Peggy Noonan wrote an article on what happened there in Time Magazine, and Reader's Digest picked it up sometime later and reprinted it. This is what Peggy Noonan wrote. Once I saw her in a breath, once I saw Mother Teresa in a breathtaking act of courage. She was the speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast in 1994. The Washington establishment was there, plus a few thousand born again Christians, Orthodox Catholics, Jews. Mother Teresa spoke of God's love, of the love of families. She said, we must love one another and care for one another. And she, and, and she said, there was this great purr of agreement going through the great crowd. But as the speech continued, it became more pointed. She spoke of unhappy parents in old people's homes who were hurt because they're forgotten. She asked, are we willing to give until it hurts in order to be with our families? Or do we put our own interests first? The baby boomers in the audience began to shift in their seats, she said. And then she continued, I feel the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. She said, and she told them uh, why in uncompromising terms. She said, for about 1.3 seconds, there was silence. Then applause swept the room. But not everyone clapped. The president and first lady, the vice president, uh, President Clinton and the first lady and vice president and Mrs. Gore looked at each other and they were seated uh, like seated statues at Madame Tussauds. Moving not a muscle, Mother Teresa didn't stop there either. When she was finished, there was almost no one (laughs) she hadn't offended. A senator turned to his wife and asked, is my jaw up yet? (laughs) Talk about speaking truth to power, but Mother Teresa didn't care and she wasn't afraid. Where do you stand? Do you have convictions that you're unwilling to bow on? And I don't mean being a religious zealot that is offensive. Sometimes, you know, there's a difference. We can offend without being offensive. Do you get that? I, 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 can, I can please God and not please people, but while I'm not pleasing people, I can still be pleasing to them. And that's a gift. That's an art. And that's something the church has to learn. Where do you stand? Do you have the courage to say whatever God asks you to say, even if it's going to cost you? Do you have the courage to do what God asks you to do, even if it's going to cost you? Do you have the ability to stand alone when you get attacked for your convictions that are biblical? See, this is Mark's meaty meaning in the sandwich. You know what it is? It's not always safe to follow Jesus. Mark tells the story of Jesus sending the disciples to tell people to repent. Remember, that's what he says. Two by two, I want you to go out there and tell them, repent. And then in the middle of the story, he says, oh yeah, we're speaking about what it means to repent, remember? Let me tell you, let me give you an example of what can happen. Can you imagine the shifting of feet, the big gulps? Oh, that's what that message can bring? Did you hear what happened, how, why John lost his head? Because he took this message. 
See, doing what God asks us, loved ones, is risky business. Jesus said it this way, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jesus said that playing it safe is the surest way to lose your life. But risking everything for Jesus is the way to save it. The only safe way is to risk and to do it like Jesus. See, John lost his head. Herod lost his soul. Who's really the loser? Challenge for us, loved ones, is to take up our cross. Jesus died on the cross. We take up the cross to die to ourselves so we live for him. This week, say, Lord, I'm, I'm ready. I, I'll do whatever. I'll be pleasing when I do it. I'll be gracious, but I'll be truthful. And the last thing is, is simply returning to Jesus. The last two verses there. This is hard, huh? Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a quiet, remote place for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. Following Jesus is an adventure but it's a risk. It takes courage. Listen, it doesn't take much of a person to follow Jesus, but it will take all of you. And sometimes, man, it can wear you out. It can wear you down. And Jesus knows that. And he says to his exhausted disciples, come with me to a quiet place. Can't you just hear them going, ah, man, demons and storms and beheadings and Serving and casting out. Ah, thank you, Lord. You know what he's teaching them there? Live with rhythm. Get a rhythm to your life that's sustainable. This passage started in verse 7 with Jesus calling them to himself, and he says, come with me. In the King James Bible, I love how it reads. In the King James verse, it says this. And Jesus said unto them, come ye yourselves apart. Somebody smartly said it this way. If you don't come apart... (laughs) you'll come apart. And it's really true, loved ones. While the call to ministry is always before us, the first call is always to Jesus, the lover of your soul. And if you keep that your priority, then you'll be ready to go because you'll live in rhythm. Come to Jesus. Go serve. Come to Jesus. Go help in this tragedy Get rest and respite. Get a pit stop from Jesus, from the church. But the best thing is we always come back to Jesus. Jesus.